Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. All right, well, open your Bibles. We are in the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 4, and I'm going to have John come up and read. Uh, for us this morning, our section of scripture. We'll be reading from Ecclesiastes 4, 4 through 6, and it says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your scriptures, God, which are alive and active. And we pray that this morning, Lord, you would speak to us. So, Lord, we want to we come with open hands this morning, God, that you would instruct us, align our hearts to you, Father, God, that you would mold us and shape us. We give you this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, recently, I watched the movie The Count of Monte Cristo. I wish I could stand up here and say I read the book The Count of Monte Cristo, but that thing is like 2,000 pages long or something like that, and the movie is only two hours and a lot more entertaining. Uh, It's a good movie, but it's a story driven by envy. If you're familiar with it, the whole story is set up on this terrific act of envy. The protagonist, Edmond Dantes, is wrongfully accused of treason by those he thought were the closest to him because they were envious of his life. They were envious of his career success. They were envious of his supposed good fortune in life, and of course they were envious of his romantic relationships as well. So out of envy, they set him up Dantes is cast into a notorious prison to rot while his so-called friends revel in his destruction. Of course, if you're familiar with the story, which I hope you are, because otherwise, spoiler alert, it goes on to follow Dantes, his daring escape from prison, his coming into a huge fortune, his rise to fame, and his drive for vengeance upon his would-be perpetrators. And all of this, the whole story, is set up on an act of human envy. The preacher, of course, in Ecclesiastes, the voice of Ecclesiastes that is teaching us, does not hold back from addressing head-on the things in life that sometimes we'd rather not look at. Some of those hard things in life. He forces us to to look at the life's big questions. Who am I, right? What is my purpose? What is the meaning of life? He forces us to look at our own mortality, that we all someday will die. He forces us to look at the fractures in our humanity. He forces us to look at that sin in us. And it's in this spirit he now forces us to look at envy. And in three short verses... He, he pulls back the curtain of our life 
to expose that which lies in all of us, and it does lie in all of us, no matter what you think, envy. You may have noticed that we've lately kind of picked up the pace as we've gone through Ecclesiastes, and it's not because we're running out of time, but because the preacher, the voice of Ecclesiastes, often circles back and hits on topics that were previously already taught and mentioned. You'll notice that especially as we move into the second half of the book that the pace kind of picks up. But for today, we're slowing down. We're only going to be looking at three short verses where the preacher hits on something that is as pervasive as it is ignored in society, and not just in society, I would say also within our Christian faith. Envy, the resenting of others for their good fortune. You know, we're, we're much more prone to give airtime to our more obvious vices, like anger or lust. And in fact, we're, I would say we're much more likely to confess those other vices than we are envy because at least those seem consistent for, or there's some expectation and that represents what a good Christian does. But to confess envy or to admit that we have envy is to say something kind of deeply dark and wicked about our hearts because it's to admit that we want other people to fail that we want to see others not make it. We want to see their downfall. And I think it's easy for us to think that envy is is not something that we particularly deal with. Oh, I've matured and moved on. You know, that was something maybe in my younger days, but it's not a regular thing for me now. And yet the preacher, pulling no punches as he does in Ecclesiastes, invites us, if we're willing, if we have the guts, to remove those rose-colored glasses and examine our hearts, all of us. In doing so, I think we see how envy drives much of what we do and how we act. In fact, Warren Buffett said that it is not greed that drives the world, but envy. So what is envy? How do we define it? Envy is we all have a un- basic understanding of what it is. It's the resentment of the good or advantage of others, right? Resentment. It's bitter indignation. It's anger when others receive something that we think we rightfully deserve. Why did they get the promotion? That should have been mine. I should have gotten promoted. According to Aristotle, envy is pain at the good fortune of others. It's that feeling when when part of you dies, when you see someone else attain something that you felt, man, that should have been mine. I should have gotten that. I can remember back in elementary school, we were supposed to make these marble mazes. I don't know how many of you had the same kind of task in elementary school, but we were supposed to make these marble mazes, and the winner of the class would be whoever's marble took the longest to go through the maze. So you had to make it, it had to keep moving. The marble had to keep moving, but it had to go really slow. So I was proud of my work, of course. You know, at the age of nine, I considered myself somewhat of a savant when it came to marble maze architecture. thought it was really amazing. thinking there's no way anyone else's maze is going to be better than mine. There's just no way. Like, you know, I grew up on Legos, so building things, it was done. I thought I was in. 
until everyone started crowding around Kristen's project. You see, Kristen had put a dab of honey on her project and the, hit, the marble hit it and slowed down to an almost imperceptible crawl. And of course, she won the competition because her marble took like 20 minutes to go through the maze when mine was done in 15 seconds. But I wanted her to fail. The nine-year-old me was so indignant that she had somehow bested me in an area that I thought I was good at. I wanted her project to be ruled out for her somehow not to make it. I didn't just want to win. I wanted her to fail. That's bitter indignation at someone else's success. That is not a pretty picture of our hearts. It's a, it's a rotten and sinful heart in us. And while it looked like a, a petty school assignment then, we're going to see in a minute how envy often manifests itself in us as adults, me included. So as my family and I have been preparing to move to Austria, uh, they speak German in Austria, and we've been learning German. Well, we've been trying to learn German as we prepare. Even our kids, are we're trying to get them to learn some German. Uh, and German has some really incredible words that we simply don't have a, a direct translation for in English. Um, that they capture an idea perfectly. So wanderlust is a word that we've adopted into English, but it's actually a German word, and it captures that idea. Now, there's several other words that have not made it into the English vernacular, but I think that there's a strong case they should. For instance, they have a word for when you get a song stuck in your head. It's called erwurm, which means earworm. It's a word that means when that song stuck in your head. Of course, there's... <laughs> this is me trying to learn German here. Inner Schweinhund, which means inner pig dog, which is the little voice in your head that tells you it's okay to be lazy today, right? Then there's Kummerspeck, which is the excess weight gained from emotional eating. Okay, this is the best part. It is literally translated sorrow bacon. I mean, how good is that? Right? Sorrow bacon. And if you're listening to your inner Schwinhund, then you're likely Kummerspeck, right? Relevant to our series in Ecclesiastes is Torschluspanik, which as is the meaning that, uh, the feeling that as one gets older, that time is running out and the important opportunities are slipping away. And the Germans also have a word for a certain manifestation of envy. We talked about how envy is the pain at the good fortune of others, schadenfreude is the pleasure derived by another person's misfortune. It's that part in us that wants to laugh when somebody trips on the curb, right, walking up. Envy isn't just pain when others succeed. It's also the pleasure we feel when others fail. And of course, there are cousins of envy, jealousy, and covetousness, which we know of. And we also know the common symptom of envy, which is competition. Envy is, is the unhealthy look at the differences between me and my neighbor. It's not just other people's possessions, but it can be their intelligence, their skill, their beauty, their opportunities that they seem to get that I should be getting. We even see it throughout the Bible. The first murder 
in the Bible in Genesis 4 was out of envy. You know the story, Adam and Eve, right? They had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel both made an offering to God. Cain's offering was rejected and Abel's was accepted. The book of Hebrews kind of adds more clarity to this and helps us understand that Abel's sacrifice was considered righteous while Cain's was done out of a sinful self-sufficiency. Cain became envious over Abel for his accepted sacrifice while his was rejected. And God told him, hey, you better watch out. Sin is crouching at your door. And what happens? Well, in the field, Cain murders his brother. Bitter indignation over his brother's acceptance manifested in the world's first murder. If you flip forward a few pages, we see envy acting in the story of Esau and his brother Jacob. Esau envied the blessing Jacob received from his father. It resulted in all sorts of family drama. And it continues with Jacob's wives, Leah and Rachel. Rachel envied Leah's ability to have children. It led to all sorts of relational messiness within that family. Saul envied David's popularity and tried to kill him on several, several occasions. Fast forward to the New Testament, and we see envy acting out in Mark 15, where Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified because he perceived that the Jewish leaders were jealous, jealous of Jesus' popularity and power, Mark 15.10. What we find, though, is that we're hardly ever envious of those who are considered outside of our circle, someone we can't identify with. We're maybe not jealous or envious of Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos for their billions of dollars. We're envious of our friend from high school who maybe just sold his company and made a couple million because we knew them, right? We were closer to them. Or our friend from the gym who just got a promotion and makes $10,000 more than me a year, right? That's who I'm more likely to be envious of. And I think that's how we can kid ourselves into thinking envy is something we don't deal with. Well, it's, you think of, oh, I'm not envious of the billions of dollars they have. But we're not really comparing ourselves to somebody that's outside, or outside of our sphere, in truth, envy acts out in a much more personal, relational way. I'm not, a, I'm not a basketball player, so I don't watch the NBA Finals filled with envy about what they can do as basketball players. I'm not a baseball player, so I'm, I don't watch a Padres game, and I'm not envious of uh, Tatis or Machado or all those other guys that swing sticks around, you know? I am, however, exposed to my sinful heart. When someone I know or I'm close to or is in the kind of like the same work I'm in or sphere I'm in does something better than me that I think I'm good at, right? It's Kristen with the marble maze all over again. I should have I won. I felt I should have had that. I'm capable until I'm proven I'm not. Then I just, I wish you would fail. I don't mind if others succeed as long as they don't succeed more than me. If I don't relate to them, I probably don't envy them because we envy our peers, those we are close with relationally, right? It's friends, family, colleagues, high school acquaintances. It's my cousin who seems to have money just growing out of his pockets. 
or it's those that we are close with in ability or status or vocation, right? Those that are in a similar field, same profession, or maybe even the same set of talents we feel we have. It's the other assistant pastor in the area who is such a better Bible teacher than me, right? Those are the ones that expose that rottenness in us, our sinful hearts. They expose our envy. It shows us our true colors. We see it when our colleague gets the promotion at work and we didn't. Bitterness. Our cousin has a growing family while we've struggled with infertility. Indignation. My friend buys a new house, but I still am renting. Disbelief. It's that one person who always gets all the admiring looks when they walk in the room, and yet no one seems to notice me. Resentment. It's that high school friend that's having articles written about them, and no one's recognizing my efforts. Envy. It's how we hate that success that they're having while we feel like we should have it. It shows us something about ourselves, and the preacher forces us to look at it. Envy shows us our sinfulness, our broken way of being human. It shows us our tendency to equate our worth, our value with what we can do or accomplish. Our abilities, our talent. So we're driven to do more, do better, have more. But of course, as the preacher often says, it's all vanity. Not only are we driven by our own envy, but we're also driven by the desire for others to be envious of us. That's what we really want. We want people to notice us when we walk into the room, right? To have their eyes go, okay, you know, we want to see that envy in them. We want them to think admiringly of us by the way we dress, the car we drive, the job we have, the bank account we have. We long for those envious stares from others because deep down we're all looking for some sort of affirmation that we have worth and value. Envy shows us our sinfulness. Ultimately, that sinfulness is is a broken perspective. It indicates a broken view of ourselves, of others, and most tragically, it represents a broken view of who God is. It shows us just how much sin has shattered God's intended way of being human. First off, it shows us a skewed view of who we are. It shows us how much we actually derive our worth and our value in life from external, under the sun, as the preacher would say, measures. We talked two weeks ago about the difference between what the world views as success and how God views success. Because it's easy to tally up the world's view of success, right? It's all the external things that we confront in all the ads and marketing. Those are all the things that add up to external worldly success. It's comfort, it's excess, it's beauty, it's career, et cetera, et cetera. We can quantify that. We make a hierarchy of human worth that we judge ourselves by and everyone else. But God's idea of success, we define as radically doing the will of God. It's not hard to see how envy short-circuits that pursuit for the Christian. Envy shows us, we, shows us we need our perspective on who we are, our core identity, realigned 
to God's truth. Envy shows us a shattered view of ourselves, but also of others. Others aren't viewed as people made in God's image and deeply loved by God, but we view them as competition to be outdone. Like we said before, I don't care if they succeed as long as they don't succeed more than me. I want my friends to get promoted, but just not higher than me, right? I want them to get a raise as long as I'm getting a few extra thousand in the raise. This, of course, is sin at work in us. It goes against God's desire for flourishing relationships. It goes against the, the so-called golden rule that we have in Matthew, treating others how you want to be treated. Philippians 2 reminds us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. But sin, acting out as envy, ruins our view of other people. Lastly, and most tragically, sin destroys a view of a loving, sovereign, and perfect God and replaces it with a lesser God of our own making. Envy reveals a distrust in God's sovereignty. When we cry out in indignation, why did they get the promotion that should have been my promotion? It's ultimately questioning God's ability and goodness in my life. Right? It questions his ability to make things right, to bring about justice. Of course, this is wrong. It's not only just a, a twisted view because it's, it's our idea of justice, but it assumes God has, is somehow unable to take care of us. That we know better. Of course I should have gotten that job. I'm better than they. But God is just and he cares for us. God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, spoke of Jesus, he said, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth. God is just, and he deeply cares about you. He deeply cares about me. One of the most encouraging passages for me and all of scripture is in Matthew 6. I just love this. It says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? God loves you so much. He takes care of you. He loves you so much. He sent his son to come and take on your judgment for that sin, that envy, and took it on himself. But we need to remember that God is, yes, just, but he is also patient. God is just and will distribute his justice, but in his time. And I'll say we are far more impatient than God is. We want it to be done right away. In envy, we think we know better and about how and when that justice should be distributed. But the Bible says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We should praise God for this, his patience, his kindness to us, and his desire that we should all be saved. He's, he's patient, he is long-suffering that all might come to him. God doesn't execute immediate justice, but gives time for repentance for us. 
But yes, his judgment and his justice is coming. A wrong view of God is so tra- tragic because from it flow that wrong view of ourself and of others. We need a right perspective about God. A right perspective allows us to have a right perspective about who other people are made in God's image and who we are loved and made in God's image. And when we have the the guts to look in those dark places that this book of Ecclesiastes is forcing us to look at, we see envy exposes a broken view of who God is, a shattered perspective of who God is, who we are, and who others are. One of our values here at Olive Branch is perspective, right? And, and from perspective flow our other three values that we talk about, mission, community, and discipleship. But that first value perspective, it's, the sequence of it is important. We define it as this, as a renewed affection. We gather to encounter God and connect people to a renewed perspective about God, themselves, and the world around them. Because from a right view of who God is, everything else makes sense. Everything else falls in line. But we have this problem. We have a broken and sinful view of ourselves. Not only that, the preacher has exposed in all of us our inclination for envy, which is really a result of just distrust in God, an unbelief in God. What do we do? What's the... What's the remedy for this? Earlier we said that envy is the bitter indignation of the good or advantage of others. What's the opposite of indignation? Contentment, as verified by Webster. Contentment, the preacher actually even points us in the right direction. And as we've said, the rest of the Bible kind of fills in the missing pieces. But look what he says in verses 5 and 6. I think we'll have it up on the screen. In verse 5 of our passage in chapter 4, it says, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. He gives us a riddle. All right, he gives us a riddle. Did you catch it? There's a bit of a riddle there. Takes a moment to kind of ponder and mull it over. Verse 4 says, All we ever work for or ends in envy. Envy is a, a bitter motivator and leads only to more emptiness for which we strive so hard for. We're all driven by envy, so what do we do? What is it? Well, the fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. It's a riddle. He's comparing three different postures towards human life. And he's using the metaphor of hands to help convey it. He uses actually three different words for hands in, this, uh, in these two verses, in 5 and 6. It's pretty much the same word in English. It's translated into hands and handful in English. But the author deliberately uses three different Hebrew words to drive across this brilliant concept. First, the fool folds his hands that first use of the word there, the Hebrew word is actually represents from your fingertips to your elbow, right? Your fingertips to your elbow. So you can kind of get the metaphor, the imagery there, right? The fool folds his hands, right? It's a, it's a posture of, of laziness. Of, he's, the, the fool is checking out. 
right? Folding his hands, folding his, I guess this would be like the forearms would be a, a more proper translation. But the fool folds his hands, checked out, right? What's it all for? It's a posture of laziness, squandering our opportunities. But the answer isn't to give up, the preacher says. What's, this is foolishness. It's foolishness. The last one mentioned in verse 6, the last one where it says, uh, two, handful, two hands full of toil and a striving after wind, two hands full of toil, that Hebrew word translates into to grasping fists. Okay, This is the imagery of that last one. The first one was a, a folding of the forearms. The second one is two grasping fists. It's a, it's a grabbing posture in life, trying to get everything you can out of it, every ounce of worth or value or satisfaction from it. It's, it's rooted in, in insecurity and envy, trying to control the outcome. Two hands grasped tight, holding on to whatever we can. Oftentimes in our culture, we might call, call this workaholism, or the more modern term is the hustle and the grind. And we actually sometimes elevate it to as a good thing. Oh, the hustle and the grind, my side gig, all those things. It's seen as an admirable, admirable trait sometimes. But envy is, is pushing us to keep up with the Joneses as if once we had more than our neighbor, we would somehow find satisfaction and fulfillment, right? The grasping of the hands. The foolish check out, but those that are, are, are grasping Holding on, it's a futile, futile attempt to grab what you can in life. So we have this middle approach, right? In verse 6, better is a handful of quietness, one handful, a handful, one handful of quietness, or sometimes tranquility in your Bibles. And that Hebrew word means this. It's, a, it's an open palm. It's this area, the palm of your hand, we might say, there. Right? The other one is grasping. One's folding. This one is, is, is an open hand. Once you close it, it's that other one. It's the grasping. But this one is one hand, too. The other one is relaxed. Simultaneously committed to being productive, committed to work, right? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that work is a part of who God made us to do, to create, design, do those things. But it's also a place of rest. Also one hand down, resting, working from a place of rest, not driven by what we don't have and others do, not driven by insecurity, but driven by rest. It's tranquility, the Bible says, it's contentment. But of course, the preacher, as we've learned in almost every one of our sermons, leaves us on the brink, right? He says, oh, the secret of life is contentment, but he doesn't really answer how to get it. Right? He leaves us on the brink. How do you get there? Ecclesiastes takes us to the edge, but it's an unfinished map for us. Contentment is what I need. Okay, well, how do I find it? What can bring us contentment? It's like the, the preacher has started a painting but left it all unfinished, and we're, we're looking at this painting saying, yes, there's something there, but I can't quite make it out. What is it? But the Bible fills in the rest of the portrait for us. Look at what Jesus tells us in Matthew 11, or listen to what Jesus tells us in Matthew 11. Another one of my favorite passages. Come to me, 
all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rest for your souls. I love that. Rest for my soul. The Bible is filling in the rest of the story that Ecclesiastes points us there. But the Bible is filling in the rest of the story. Contentment is found in Christ. Rest for our souls is found in Jesus. For only he can give us true contentment. For it was he who made us and knows what we ultimately need. In him, we stop looking for for purpose, redemption, for salvation, and anything else because we have it in Christ Jesus. In Christ, envy no longer controls us. We find that we can appreciate a colleague's promotion or a neighbor's new car or another's talent or success because we know ultimately that our worth and satisfaction aren't going to be found in striving after those things because we can find it in Jesus. It's been said that sin is a refusal to be human. It's an interesting way to look at it, that sin is a refusal to be human. But in Christ, we discover what it means to be fully human. It's having a right perspective about who God is, which flows into a right perspective of who I am and who other people are. How do we do that? It's through an intimate and transformative relationship with Jesus Christ. A prayer life that is real, not just words, but full of communion with Jesus through his Holy Spirit. It's an abandonment to his truth, not simply reading the Bible, but allowing his word to wash over us and transform the way we live. It's falling in love with a Savior who so profoundly loves each and every one of us. Tim Keller said, if we are deeply moved by the sight of Jesus, his love for us, it detaches our heart from other would-be saviors. I would say that includes viewing ourselves as our own savior. Right? When we are deeply moved by the sight of Jesus, it detaches our heart from other places that we would look for satisfaction, value, worth, salvation. Envy that aware it's a, an awareness and displeasure with the advantage of other people it's what they have that i should have right and you're going to see as we move forward in ecclesiastes envy makes us look at the i but you'll see next week the the preacher is going to turn to community the we you know we as uh, as i mentioned my family and i were as we've been preparing to move one of the things that we have to do is uh, we live in uh, a family house in Escondido and so we've been getting it ready because for new renters to come in and as we've been doing so we've been confronted with all the projects that we've put off in the last few years that we've lived there you know things that are on that uh, honey-do list and have been there for a couple years Um, I know you guys have those so there's several things that all of a sudden we're like wow we should really finish that we need to finish it um, before we move out and there's several outdoor projects, some landscaping that we've been doing uh, in the in our front yard there, because uh, we you know heard about a thing on HGTV called curb appeal. Um, but 
the task of, of doing some new landscaping before the, to begin is the task of clearing out the old, right? Pulling up the weeds, uh, pulling out the rocks, the stumps, uh, before we plant anything new. And in a way, Ecclesiastes is kind of like that. Ecclesiastes is, is clearing the land. It's pulling out the weeds and the stumps and all of that. But in a lot of ways, it does not get to the, the new planting yet. It does not get to the new growth. It's a clearing away. It's forcing us to look at our hearts, to see the sin of our lives, and uproot those things. But it leaves us pregnant with anticipation, and yet the book itself does not deliver. If you get, if you're getting frustrated reading Ecclesiastes, that's why, because it does play this negative role in the Bible of forcing us to look at things that are vanity and chasing after the wind. But that's why we can thank God for the whole of scripture that we have before us. That answers those, those deep questions that Ecclesiastes leaves us hanging with. Because the rest of scripture points us to, to Christ that God is the one who fulfills what we lack. He's the one who gives us eternal purpose, who gives us life. Ecclesiastes tells us that everything else, every other pursuit that we make, and for each of us, that's, that's going to look differently in our lives, right? Because we've all dealt with that. And hopefully through this, we're, we're seeing, I'm seeing, areas of my life where, where Christ really isn't on the throne of that area, but I've let something else dictate and say who I am and not Jesus say who I am. But Ecclesiastes says, you know what, all of those things, whether it's career, whether it's family, whether it's comfort, security, all those things, none of those pay off. None of those pay off, right? The, the, it's grasping after the wind. It, it's a lot of activity, but at the end of the day, it's, there's nothing tangible. There's no substance to it. So it points us to the rest of Scripture, which tells us that if you want substance, you're going to find it only in Jesus Christ. Right? That's where we truly know who we are, what it means to be fully human. In Christ, we, we find contentment, right? And the best term of that. It's that, that open palm, right? It's not grasping after things that leave us only grasping after the wind, right? It's not checking out, folding of our hands and saying, ah, what's it all for anyways? It's a place of working out of rest. It's, it's really just a place of identity, knowing that our worth, our value is dictated by who God says we are, not by any other measure that we come up with ourselves. A life lived trying to find contentment in anything else is, as Ecclesiastes says time and time again, it's striving after the wind. It's vanity. It, it amounts to nothing. But our envy does not stand a chance when we recognize how much we are loved and cared for by God of the universe. When we can, then we can have a right view of ourselves, a right view of other people, because it's in Christ Jesus that we find rest for our souls. Pray with me. Lord God, we 
thank you. God, you have pointed us the way of Jesus that we might find rest for our souls. God, we thank you that you beckon us to come to you. Lord, you say, come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We thank you for that truth, God, that we can come to you. And Lord, you are gentle. Lord, you do not treat us as our sins deserve, but you lavish us with love. God, so we pray, Father, that, God, we would turn to you. Expose the areas of our life, Father, that where you're not on the throne, Lord. And God, would we, would we fall more deeply in love with you, Jesus? Lord, we, we love you. We want to worship you, God. Lord, so we thank you, Father, that you are near to us. And Lord, you are the answer to all of life's deepest questions. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.